reading from the Acts of the Apostles. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the 11, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents of the, in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. When the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Spirit of God, who with the Father and the Son we worship and glorify this morning, would you descend upon our hearts? Would you enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ? Would you renew our wills? Would you persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus as you offer him to us in the gospel? Be with us and bless us as we sit with your scriptures this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. A recent study by Pew Research shows that 27% of U.S. adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And that number has risen by eight percentage points in just five years, making spiritual but not religious the fastest growing religious identity in the U.S., one that often overlaps quite a bit with the so-called religious nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, right? Those who claim no religious affiliation at all, who make up about a quarter of the population overall and nearly 40% of the 18 to 30 crowd. That's huge. As we celebrate Pentecost today, which is the birthday of the church and the celebration of God's outpouring of his spirit in abundance upon his people, I think it's really important for us to listen to and reflect on what our spiritual but not religious friends and neighbors have to teach us. Because as much as many in the church today want to bemoan the current trend away from organized religion in our society, it's important that we recognize and be honest about the fact that we, the church, are the ones who've created this. The problem isn't out there in society somewhere or out there in a culture that's going down the tubes. The problem is right here within and among us. The problem is in the church. And specifically, the problem with the church that I think we must recognize this morning is that we have drifted from our original Pentecost charter the one given to us by the Lord Jesus himself when he commissioned us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and then poured out his spirit upon us so that the very divine life force that animates God's own inner life, which is the same life force that animated Jesus's earthly life and ministry, that that life force, the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit not of fear but of power, would become the beating heart and the vigorous breath and the dynamic energy of the church, which is to be the the body of Christ on the earth. And the vision that Jesus has given to us for what his body is to be and to do in the world as we are enlivened and guided by his spirit is that the life and the love that we receive from God in the spirit, we would A, return back to God, as we worship him in spirit and in truth, 
and that B, we would extend outward to our friends, our neighbors, even our enemies across every dividing line that fractures humanity so that we may be, as it were, God's own open arms of welcome and embrace as God does his work of gathering in people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation into one family, united in Christ and to one another by the bond of the Holy Spirit. That is an incredibly beautiful and glorious charter. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that Pentecost vision and mission is not necessarily the one that has captivated the imagination of much of the church, is it? That vision isn't what you or I or anyone else for that matter comes to think of first when we are asked to describe what the church is like. Because sadly, we the church have let other visions shape our imagination and we've let other dynamics drive our collective life and public witness, right? I mean, what have we seen? We've seen the church cling to social power and political power rather than following the spirit in the way of Jesus who always uses his power to bless others who always uses his power to seek justice and establish peace for all rather than to protect or promote or prop up himself. And what else have we seen? We found that the church has also clung to a false kind of security that has made us all defensive and weird and largely unhelpful to the last several generations of seekers. We've not found our security in the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth, to borrow Jesus' words from the gospel text we just read. And we haven't found our unity in the spirit who has created in Christ a new humanity, as the Apostle Paul says. The spirit who binds us together with our sisters and brothers and fellow journeyers. But instead, we've sought security in our uncertainties, haven't we? And we've sought unity in our agreement on issues and having all the right and tidy answers to life's big, big questions, which is this habit that in turn has prompted many within the church to close ourselves off to new insights, to new discoveries, to new members, right? And to double down on holding on to whatever we've already said, already done, already become familiar and comfortable with, as if the spirit of truth finished the work of leading us into all truth at some point in the past, when the church or some sector of the church finally nailed it, finally arrived at some complete articulation or practice of something that will never need to be revised or reformed. And of course, these are the things that have left our spiritual but not religious friends with a bad taste in their mouths. And these are the things that they've rightly found troubling about the American church, right? What our spiritual but not religious friends have tasted and seen from us is not this beautiful vision of this vibrant, spirit-filled community that Jesus has called us to be and empowered us to be, but rather they've experienced us as institutional religion, as religious but not spiritual. 
And in not finding anything among us that has struck them as compelling or authentic, they've moved on to other communities and other strategies to help them exercise their spiritual muscle as they seek to satisfy that longing that lives deep within them. Longing that lives deep within every one of us, right? To be connected to something bigger than ourselves. To experience transcendence, to be fully alive and human in a way that we sense and feel in the depth of our being is something greater than just this material stuff of which we're made. My own story is one where I was a spiritual but not religious kind of person. Um, I, I would have probably claimed that identity if that was a phrase that would, would have been going around 17, 18 years ago. And in my own story, I was fortunate enough to encounter a community that was surprising surprisingly genuine and refreshing, that was able to nurture me in the way of connecting with God the Spirit through Christ. But not everyone is so fortunate, and we shouldn't blame them for moving on. Rather, what we need to do is listen to their stories. We need to learn from them, and we need to begin to recognize just how much both we and the world need us, need the church to live into our Pentecost charter. I actually think the story of Pentecost speaks so powerfully to both those who would call themselves spiritual but not religious and those who maybe are in fact more religious but not spiritual because it expresses just how both of these either-or approaches will always leave us wanting more, will always leave us with an itch that's just not quite scratched. Neither is capable of leading us into the kind of experience of spirituality that we crave. And neither is capable of producing in us the kind of transformation that we need to undergo in order to become the life givers in God's world that we want to be, that we're made to be, that God calls us to be. What we need is a much richer, deeper, more integrated both-and approach to our spirituality and religion, which is exactly what we find here in the story of Pentecost. And it's exactly what we find here in the Apostles' Creed that we've been reflecting on since Easter. And today, as we come to these lines of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. These are statements that flow directly out of the Pentecost story. And in them, we discover a message that is both profoundly spiritual yet thoroughly religious, if we can put it that way. Spiritual and religious at the same time. Because on one hand, both Pentecost and the Creed, they remind us that the way God is present to us on the earth is as spirit. And because of that, they speak to our longings to be connected to something greater, don't they? They, they speak to our longing to experience transcendence and to tap into that aspect of our humanity and life that extends beyond the limits of the material world. And in that way, it's as if the, the story of Pentecost and the creed say to the seeker, look, you're onto something. The life to which God calls us is a journey. It is an exploration. It is an adventure. It is a quest for beauty and truth, and it is about authenticity. It's not about landing in some settled space of clarity and certainty around easy answers to hard questions. It's about life in the Spirit, which you will never be able to fully predict or pin down. You who are spiritual seekers are likely more right about that than most American Christians 
But Pentecost is also the birthday of the church. The church. It's a day that reminds us that the way God is present to the world as spirit is that God has chosen to make his home in the company of his people. God the Spirit lives in and among the community of people who receive the Spirit, who share in the life of the Spirit, who walk together in the fellowship of the Spirit and worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, the spirituality for which God has made us and to which God calls us is not a solo sport. can't be. Because God's Spirit has chosen to dwell in Jesus' church. And that church is, by definition, a communion. And as we've been discussing over the past six weeks, the, the creed, this creed that we say every week, it's one of the great treasures of this community called the church, that is, and it's been, we've been using it for nearly 2,000 years as a kind of spiritual roadmap to guide us in our seeking and to guide us in our worship and in our bearing witness to the world about God's love displayed and given in Jesus. It's a map that when we use it well, it steers the church back to our original Pentecost charter. So I want us to think just briefly for the, about these three statements of the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, who or what is that? Well, the Apostles' Creed is very simple and brief. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But the Nicene Creed, which we will confess actually later this morning, it unpacks that statement just a little bit more for us. The Nicene Creed describes the Holy Spirit as the Lord, the giver of life, which is to say that the Holy Spirit is none other than God himself. He is the Lord. And with the Father and the Son, he is to be worshipped and glorified, the Creed says. As we read through the scriptures, we find many places where the Spirit is described as the power of God at work in the world, God's creative and recreative power by which God made the world by whom God raised Jesus from the dead and by whom God makes us alive together with Christ. So the Spirit is described as a power, but we also find many other places that speak of the Spirit as a person, one who speaks, one who may be grieved, one who leads and bears witness, who searches and knows, who gives gifts and provides wisdom, and who even cries out from within us, Abba, Father. This person, this power, the Spirit, what is that? Who is that? He is God. Not a created being, not an impersonal energy, but the creator himself, the giver of life, He's the spirit we see in Genesis, brooding over the face of the deep at creation when God brought forth life out of desolation and emptiness. He's the spirit we see in the Gospel of Luke, brooding over the womb of Mary, the dawn of new creation, knitting together the life of our Savior. He's the spirit of resurrection we see in Romans 8 
As Paul describes the Spirit as the one who reached down into death and brought Jesus back up to the land of the living. He's the Spirit we see in the book of Acts, as we just read. The Spirit who's given by the Father to the Son on the day of Jesus' heavenly coronation and then poured out by the risen and ascended Christ upon his people on the day of Pentecost. The very breath of God and life of God breathed into the community of the Spirit. The Creed says he's the Spirit who has spoken through the prophets or if we want to say it in the language of the, of the writer of Hebrews, we would say he's the spirit who in former days and in various ways spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken in son. The spirit who spoke through Jesus, the son, and who now speaks today through God's sons and daughters who live in union and communion with Christ by the spirit. And this was the long-awaited hope of the people of Israel that one day all of God's people would become prophets on that great day when the Spirit would come. It's what Moses longs for in Numbers 11 when he's appointed these 70 elders and the Spirit comes upon them and someone goes, Moses, aren't you jealous? You used to be the one, you used to be the guy and now the Spirit's on 70 people. You've kind of been demoted. Are you jealous? And he's like, jealous? If only all God's people could be prophets. And it's the day that the prophet Joel anticipated as he awaited the day of the Lord. And he says, in that day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And what will happen? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even your male and your female slaves will be prophets. All the people of God. And even as we just read in this passage from Acts, we see Peter on the day of Pentecost as he's addressing the crowd after this thing has happened and the people are all interpreting it according to whatever grid that they have to interpret it with. And they're saying, these people are drunk. And Peter says, they're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. Which tells me that Peter has obviously not tailgated with the eagles crowd. <laughs> that is not a compelling argument. Fortunately, he doesn't stop there. That's not the meat of his argument. He quotes the prophet Joel and he tells the people, what you are seeing today is actually that famous prophecy come true. And he quotes Joel. In that day, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even your male and female slaves shall be prophets. Something new has happened. Something dramatic has happened. This life-giving, gift-giving spirit of God has come upon the whole community. The day of the Lord has come. The Spirit is here. God's new creation has dawned. And now all of God's people, the whole church, is anointed with the Spirit to bear witness in the world to the good news. Which is exactly why we really need to learn to listen to one another. It's why we need the voices of the many members of our body to speak and to be heard, because we should expect in one another, in the many members of the Spirit-filled church, we should expect to hear the voice of God spoken back to us from our sisters and brothers in the church. And the Apostle Paul actually tells us that this is how the body grows up in maturity. 
It's through this dynamic of speaking the truth in love as the many members of the body do their body member work and love one another and speak the truth to one another in love. It's through this mutual submission and participation and cultivation that the body grows up into our head who is Jesus. And that, the apostle tells us, is true spirituality. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. What does it mean that the church is holy and Catholic? We say that every week. What do we mean when we say that? Obviously, we don't mean that the church is filled with exceedingly holy people, right? I mean, obviously, that's not the case. If you've been around the church for more than five minutes, you know that that's not the case. The church has failed in so many ways and so grievously, and we have to own that. We have to acknowledge that. We have to repent of that. To say that the church is holy is not to say that we've done a moral assessment on the general population and the church is above average. But rather it is to say that the church is set apart by God for a purpose, which is a fact about what God has done more than it is a moral assessment or the state of the church's health. The church is holy because the Holy Spirit has created it and set it apart. And sometimes the church actually bears witness to that reality. And sadly, often we do not. But when we, the church, are actually living into our Pentecost charter, our life together bears witness to the reality that the church is holy. That the church is actually where God has chosen to dwell and what he's doing in us and among us is something beautiful and different, something life-giving. The Spirit is here. That's what it means that the church is holy. What does it mean when we say that the church is Catholic? When we say that, we don't mean to say that any one denomination is the right one. It's actually to say exactly the opposite of that. The word Catholic simply means universal. And when we confess that we believe in the holy Catholic church, we're saying that we believe that the community God has created by his spirit is one. It's one unified and universal community that extends across every dividing line to people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, race, language, ethnicity, culture, and religious background. It is to say that there are no first-class or second-class citizens in the body of Christ, only beloved children of God. There's no people group on earth that is categorically excluded from the community of God's spirit. We are all the same. Sinners saved by God's grace in Christ, made alive by God's spirit, washed in the waters of baptism, and given a place at Jesus' table because and only because he invited us. We, the church, begin to live into our Pentecost charter when we grow against the grain of our culture of divisiveness and polarization, and we begin to practice together a life of receiving and giving grace, of seeking justice and peace for all, and of cultivating unity in the church, even in the midst of our disagreements. So important. 
And if we're going to live out of our Pentecost charter, we, the church, must, we must strive toward living together as one family. When we divide, when we turn against one another, we fail to live out of the identity and the calling that God has given us. We fail to testify with our lives that what is true about us is true. That God has created in Christ a new humanity. A humanity he is enlivening by his spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. What is the communion of saints? Well, like the church being holy, saint isn't a word that means extra super special holy person. It's simply someone who has been set apart by the Spirit of God. And when we say that we believe in the communion of saints, what we're saying is that we believe that God has knit together a community of his Spirit-filled people that is participating in this mutual, indwelling, life-sharing community that transcends every dividing line including the great big one that no one else has figured out how to transcend, the dividing line of death that separates the living from the dead. There's a beautiful line uh, in the hymn, The Church is One Foundation. It says, Yet she on earth, she is the church, she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. It's a beautiful mystery. And as we use the creed as our map that steers us in our spiritual seeking and in our worship and in our our understanding of who we are and who God is, that is a really beautiful line that God has knit us together as part of a community, not only with those that we can see and touch, but with those who've gone before us and those who will come after. That even now, gathered around the heavenly throne of Christ, The saints and the angels worship him and that we've been included in that fellowship. That's mysterious, but it's glorious. And we live today in light of the presence of this cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on and the veil between them and us is thin. What we need are moments where we recognize that the Spirit passes through that veil. And the spirit who lives in us is the spirit who lives in them. And we are all one. Our hope is real. Ben Myers, in his book on the Apostles' Creed, has this really beautiful statement about what it means to be a Christian. As he's talking about the communion of saints, he says this, Becoming a Christian is not really about institutional membership or about adopting a system of ideas. To become a Christian is to be included in the circle of Jesus' followers. I'm washed with the same bath that Jesus and all of his followers have had. I get to share the same meal that Jesus shared with his followers. Four of Jesus' followers left written records of what he said and what he was like, and I get to spend my life continually pondering those four accounts. I read them not because I'm studying ideas about Jesus, but because I'm studying him. I want everything in my life, right down to the smallest and most disappointing details, to enter somehow into communion with the life of Jesus. I share the holy bath 
and the holy meal. And I read the holy stories because I'm seeking Jesus. But when I do these things, I'm also seeking myself. I want to find myself among the circle of Jesus' followers. I want to be wherever Jesus is, and he is in the company of his friends. I want my whole life to be hidden with Christ and God. I want my life's small story to be tucked into the folds of Jesus' story. When this happens, my life acquires a meaning beyond itself. That is what it means to say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. It means to abide with Jesus and with one another in this way, which is a whole lot more about being spiritual, actually, than it is about being religious, isn't it? Though at the same time, the church is where God has chosen to make his home. And the church is the custodian of this rich treasure store of our history, even our creeds. And as we explore this innate longing for transcendence, as we try to tap in to that depth of spirituality that is ours because of our human existence in the world God has made, and we live with that insatiable nagging to be part of something more, this creed gives us a map that orients us toward life in God's people where we may actually experience that for which we so profoundly long. But if the church is to be that place for you, for me, and for our neighbors, we must return to our Pentecost charter and take up this life in the Spirit of God where we recognize that this Spirit of life the giver of life who was brooding over the face of the deep at creation, who was brooding over the womb of Mary, who was brooding over the empty tomb, is now even brooding over your own life, over your hurts and your fears, over your story, over your seeking, over your settledness, and drawing you and drawing us into this mystic, sweet communion with God and one another, and those who've gone before us. That is what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is here. Amen. As the musicians are coming forward and we prepare to um, take up our offering, let me invite Allison Wattenbarger to come up. Um, we're going to pray for Allison. Uh, and the offering is an appropriate time to do this because Allison is a gift we have received and a gift we get to give. Uh, where she has been with us. We've gotten to watch her grow up uh, through high school, through college, and she's just completed seminary. And would you just take 30 seconds, 20 seconds, to tell us yes. where you're going and what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so a week from tomorrow, I'm going to be flying to Tel Aviv. I'm going to be living in Jerusalem for the next 14 months, um, running Christian education programs at Tantor, which is a sort of study and retreat center run by the University of Notre Dame. So if you're in the Middle East, give me a call. I'll be there. All right. May we pray for you? Please. All right. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for our sister Allison and for the joy and privilege that it is for us um, to walk with her. We thank you uh, for the way that we have watched her story unfold over many years here uh, among us. We thank you for the incredible gifts that you've given her, 
uh, for her intellect, for her love of others, for her desire uh, to cross cultural boundaries um, and enter awkward relational space to offer the love of Christ to those with whom she may have the opportunity to share it. And we pray that you would be with her and bless her as she goes. Uh, and we ask that you would make her time there fruitful, both in her own life and in the lives of those that she will serve. We pray for her safety. We pray for your peace in Israel. Um, we pray for your peace to be around her and to be around all the people that she will be serving. And we pray that your spirit would go before her and go behind her, that you would be her guide and her rear guard. We pray that you would uh, open her eyes that she may see your beloved and that she may love them and serve them, uh, that she may be the hands and feet of Jesus in their lives. We pray that you would provide for her every need and we pray that as she goes, that she would know that you are near, that she would find uh, her own home and refuge in you and that she would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the community back in Philadelphia, uh, that her church loves her, sends her with gladness and looks forward to receiving her once again and hearing stories of how you have been at work in and through her life. So we give you thanks and praise, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for our sister Allison, and we send her with our blessing now and ask that you would do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.